0: Welcome to New Fear Unlocked, a weekly true crime podcast where each week I tell you a story and you potentially gain a new fear. This week's case is a really good one with a few twists and turns throughout and the case entirely rides on the forensics and it actually comes from Forensic Files Season 2, Episode 6, The Blood Trail. As for this week's sources, I'm actually going to put them in the description of the episode instead of including them in the actual podcast Um, And a little housekeeping just before we begin. First, I want to apologize for the slight delay in posting this episode. Between travel, jet lag, and the holidays, everything has just been pushed back a little bit more than I would have liked. And second, I've left a poll on this week's episode below asking for case suggestions. I do have quite a few planned out already, but I do think it would be kind of fun to do cases that the listeners want to hear. So drop in ideas down below. Um, you could also include like a fear or something, and then I can go and try to find a case that relates to that fear for you if you want to do that instead. And as always, this week's episode does discuss topics such as murder and bombings, which may not be suitable for all listeners. Listener discretion is advised. So Graham Backhouse and his wife Margaret lived with their kids on the Winnon Hill Farm in Horton, England. Not long before 1984, Graham took over the farm from his father. However, he knew very little about farming, being a previous hairdresser. I can only assume, however, that his kids were really excited about living on a farm with all of the animals, the land to play on. So the family does just take over it, even with the lack of experience that they have. Now, Horton is a small, quiet town in England. Not much happened there whatsoever. So when one of Backhouse's farmhands come running to him on March 30th, 1984, about a severed lamb head on a fence post on the property and a handwritten note stating, You next. Backhouse was obviously very fearful. He immediately calls up the local police in order to report the incident, where he further reveals this isn't the only threat he has received lately. Prior to this, he'd received multiple threatening phone calls, some which escalated to murder and an unsigned threatening letter, which according to the Forensic Files episode Blood Trail, wrote, You have ruined my sister's life. I'm going to get you, you bastard. Now, unfortunately, police didn't actually take these threats seriously, and on April 9th, 1984, they turned violent. On this day, Margaret Backhouse hops in her husband's car to go shopping in town, as her own car had mechanical issues and was in the shop. As she turns the key in the ignition, the whole town is rattled by a massive explosion. Margaret manages to open her car door, fall out of the seat, and drag herself away from the car, where some passers-by find her and bring her to the hospital. It takes hours and the surgical removal of more than a pound of shrapnel and thousands of pellets, but ultimately she survives this attack on her life. While his wife is in surgery, police are back at the car investigating and speaking with Mr. Backhouse. We'll start with what they find in the car. So police discover a homemade pipe bomb that had been placed directly below the driver's seat within the car. Jeffrey Robinson, the forensic scientist who examined this bomb, stated that while it was homemade, it was incredibly sophisticated, more like a, quote, shortened version of a shotgun than a bomb. It was, quote, constructed by a thick walled steel pipe, and according to history.com article on this case, contained nitroglycerin and around 4,000 shotgun pellets. Investigators determined Margaret's survival was strictly coincidental. The force of the explosion was sent downwards rather than upwards due to the construction of the driver's seat. Next, we can discuss the outcome of the questioning with Graham Backhouse. He states that he was in the barn with music playing when the explosion must have happened and therefore was unable to hear the explosion or the screams of his wife. Further, he hands over a letter he had received earlier that morning. It was unsigned and read, came twice last week, but the pigs were about, see you soon. With both the word twice and were misspelled. While all of this sounds a little bit sketchy to me, Louise and Horton seemed to believe it and finally took the threat seriously. All of it left police with two questions. Who wanted Graham dead, and why? In the meantime, experts took a look at the letter about pigs and determined each misspelling was actually deliberate. They also examined the U-next note. Using oblique lighting, a technique in which a light is shown on a piece of paper from a very low angle in order to show shadows on the paper from impressions, tool marks, and certain types of fingerprints, The investigators were able to photograph a circular doodle indentation that would have been made by someone doodling on the page above the one used for the note. Now, a few days after the bombing, police bring Backhouse back in to find an answer for those exact questions they had asked about, like, who could have done this, do you have enemies? They asked him all about ex-girlfriends who may have a vendetta, and any known enemies. He denied having any ex-girlfriends who would have wanted to do this, but did point them towards a David Hopkinson and Colin Bedale Taylor as two potential enemies. David was a quarry worker whose wife had a sexual affair with Grant Backhouse. Mr. Backhouse explained to police that Mr. Hopkinson's job involves using explosives, and made this lead seem like their best bet. So police began investigating. Police discover that not only was Mr. Hopkinson a quarry worker but he was also a trained electrician who specialized specifically in the wiring of automobiles. Unfortunately, he had an airtight alibi, though. David was out of the country on the day of the bombing and had been gone for about three to four days prior as well. So next they moved on to Colin Bedale Taylor, who seemed to be a better suspect. He was a retired engineer, backhouse's neighbor, and according to the community, quote, acting irrationally, due to severe depression following the death of his son in a car crash two years prior. Further, it was well known in the community that Backhouse and Bedell Taylor were in a land dispute, which they couldn't resolve whatsoever. When investigating him for this bombing, though, police found he was well-liked and respected in the entire neighborhood, and quite frankly, there was complete lack of evidence suggesting he was involved in it in any way, shape, or form. So with both leads fizzling out, police assigned a 24-hour protection to the entire backhouse family. Less than a week later, on April 18, 1984, Graham requested the police presence be stopped as he was annoyed and irritated by it. Police obviously weren't comfortable with this, but obliged on the condition that they set up an alarm button in the backhouse home that connected directly to the police station so that the backhouse family could contact police with near immediacy if anything occurs. And two weeks later, on April 30th, this exact scenario occurred. The alarm went off, and when police arrived, there was a horrific scene in front of them. They found blood droplets on the floors, chairs were overturned, Colin Bedell-Taylor lay dead on the floor by stairs, and Backhouse was in a pool of blood in the lounge. On closer inspection, Bedell-Taylor was tightly clutching a Stanley knife with his initials transcribed on it in his right hand, and Backhouse had a gaping gash wound on his face and across his entire chest. Backhouse told police that his neighbor stopped by earlier that night to check on his wife following the car bombing. Suddenly, without warning, Bedell Taylor got angry and violently attacked him with a Stanley knife, claiming he was doing, quote, God's work, blaming Backhouse for the death of his son, and admitting to the car bombing, which was intended for Mr. Backhouse. It's at this point that Backhouse claims he ran to grab his shotgun and shot Bedale Taylor twice in the chest out of self-defense. Immediately, police tape off the house and call in forensic detectives to take a much closer look at the scene. And when they arrive, they nearly immediately feel that something isn't right with the scene. The blood spatter evidence told a story that was completely inconsistent with Backhouse's story of events. The blood drops police found were primarily small circular drops of blood, suggesting an individual was standing rather than in a struggle when the blood hit the ground. When a drop of blood hits a surface at about a 90 degree angle, the drop has minimal elongation and is quite circular in shape. Whereas when there is a struggle or blood is dropping at any angle other than 90, the drop gets quite elongated and will have a tail that suggests the direction the blood was traveling when it landed on the surface. Additionally, there was absolutely no blood leading out of the kitchen into the hallway where Backhouse claimed he went to grab the gun after he had received the gashes from Bedell Taylor's knife. The hallway wasn't the only place that there was suspiciously no blood, though. When police examined the gun, which again, Backhouse states he used after being cut, there was absolutely no blood droplets on it. Lastly, upon examining Bedell Taylor's shirt, they found droplets of, of blood on it which they found suspicious to say the least. Now at this point, I want to just take a moment to talk about blood spatter analysis, which is something I just find incredibly interesting. So essentially, blood exists in our body as a liquid and therefore leaves the body as a liquid, but blood will clot within minutes. This allows an analyst to determine the length of time an attack went on for. If they only have fresh blood, no clots, the attack likely took place over a very short amount of time. If they find clots within the blood at a scene, then it suggests a prolonged attack. As blood is a liquid, it can leave the body in various ways. It can flow, drip, spray, spurt, gush, or ooze from smaller wounds. In terms of blood stains, there are three basic types. Passive stains, transfer stains, and projected or impact stains. So, Passive stains are drops, flows, and pools of blood which occur due to gravity acting on an injury. A transfer stain occurs when an object comes into contact with an existing blood stain and therefore leaves wipes, swipes, or pattern transfers behind. Examples of this type of stain include bloody shoe prints or smears from a body being dragged. An impact stain is when blood projects through the air. These are usually seen as spatter but can include gushes, splashes, or arterial spurts. Blood spatter consists of impact spatter, which is when a force is applied to a liquid blood source, such as a human body, or projected spatter, which is due to arterial spurting or cast-off from an object. Now, the characteristics of blood spatter depends on the speed at which the blood is leaving the body and the type of force that it was applied to the blood source. So cast-off is when an object is swung in an arc and flings blood on nearby surfaces. The swinging of that object back before inflicting another blow is what creates that cast-off. Analysts can determine the direction of motion based on the tails of the blood spatter, which will point the way of the motion. Then, through counting the number of blood spatter arcs, allows an analyst to determine the number of blows at minimum delivered to an individual. Now, relevant to our case is gunshot spatter, which consists of both forward spatter from the exit wound and back spatter from the entrance wound. Forward spatter is a more fine mist, and back spatter is larger with fewer drops. Gunshot spatter does vary, though, and depends on the caliber of gun, where the victim was shot, if the bullet was through and through, the distance between the victim and the gun when shot, and the location of the victim in relation to the rest of their environment. Bloodstains can also be latent, which means they cannot be seen with the naked eye. Investigators often use a chemical called luminol, which reacts to the iron in the blood's hemoglobin and glows bright blue under black light. This allows investigators to find and photograph these invisible blood states. So back to our forensic evidence found at the scene that kind of contradict Backhouse's story. As I explained earlier, Colin was found tightly clutching a Stanley knife transcribed with his initials in his right hand. Forensic pathologist Ian West explains in the Forensic Files episode that this is incredibly unusual and unexpected. He explains that, quote, when somebody is shot or when somebody dies, they go limp. So then I would expect to see the response or the body's response to being shot twice in the chest and death taking place simply to relax and the knife would fall from the hand. Wouldn't be clutched tightly in the hand. Additionally, when they removed the knife from the hand, Bedale Taylor's palm was completely covered in blood. No sparing in the location of the knife whatsoever. Again, this is unusual, as usually that area where a weapon is being held would be spared of blood entirely, or very lightly stained with blood. So this suggested to investigators that the knife had to have been placed in his palm after he had died. Next, we have Backhouse's chest wound, which traveled nearly the full circumference of his chest. Again, forensic pathologist Ian West explained that when an individual gets stabbed, the entire body retracts, so he would quote, Never expect to see that kind of injury. Additionally, Backhouse had absolutely no defensive wounds which would have corroborated the story of a struggle. Often when individuals are stabbed, they will grab the knife to try and stop the attack, getting cuts on their palms or their fingers. They also may put a hand out to try and block the knife, resulting in cuts on the side of their hand or forearm. With all these inconsistencies, police decide to search the whole backhouse home and found a notepad in his office. While flipping through this, investigators found a circular doodle on one of the pages which matched identically to the indentation on the U-next note. The forensic scientist who had worked on these stated, quote, it was exactly the same, there was no doubt about it. The evidence was stacking up against Backhouse, but police did still have Bedale Taylor as a suspect, so they searched his property. Here they found a long section of pipe on the grounds close to the neighbor's home, which perfectly matched the remnants of the bomb leading them to believe Bedell Taylor had at the very least built the bomb. With all of this evidence, the police started to try to piece together what actually happened. They believe Backhouse had attempted to kill his wife and collect on her life insurance policies to pay off the debts of the farm. Police learned through neighbors that the farm was not doing well, as they had had two straight years of crop failures, resulting in about a 50,000 pounds of debt to a bank. Desperate to pay this off, Backhouse doubled his wife's policies to £100,000 total. He knew that he could not be charged with the murder in order to receive the money, so he devised a plan to get the police to think someone was trying to kill him, and his wife was simply an innocent victim in all of it. He fabricated the threatening phone calls, impaled the sheep's head on his own farm post, and wrote himself the You Next note. Police also suspected he wrote the pig note and mailed it to himself. He then planted a pipe bomb under the driver's seat in his car, knowing his wife would have to use it the following day. The problem for Backhouse started, though, when his wife actually survived the explosion, making him worry he would be suspected in the attempted murder of his wife. This is when he set up Bedell Taylor as the scapegoat for his crimes. He was aware that all of the villagers knew about their land dispute so he planted the rest of the pipe on his neighbor's property before inviting him over to discuss the sale of some furniture. As you can probably expect at this point, this was all a trap, and as soon as the neighbor walked into the hallway, he was shot twice in cold blood, explaining why there was no blood of backhouses in the hallway or on the gun. At this point, Backhouse took a knife he transcribed with his neighbor's initials and makes the cuts into his own face and chest before tipping over chairs. He then plants the knife in Bedell Taylor's hand, which explains the blood droplets that were suspicious on his neighbor's shirt and the bloody palm under the knife. With this theory in mind, and more evidence against Backhouse than Bedell Taylor, police arrest him for the attempted murder of his wife and murder of his neighbor in February of 1985. However, they needed something to really seal the deal and ensure the conviction. To do this, they investigated the letter delivered on the day of the bombings, the one about pigs. They had planned to take a sample of dry saliva from the letter flap to determine the blood group of the person who licked it. Saliva at a crime scene is incredibly useful, allowing for investigators to do deoxyribonucleic acid testing or DNA testing, sex determination, bite mark analysis if relevant, and blood grouping. Saliva is most often obtained in the dry form but can be taken wet from a crime scene as well. When it comes to blood grouping saliva, though, it depends on whether the individual is a secretor or not. If they are a non-secretor, no blood group antigens will be left in their saliva. If they are a secretor, forensic scientists can detect an individual's ABO group from the saliva with up to nearly 100% accuracy. Now, saliva isn't the only source of blood group antigens that can be left at a crime scene. These antigens can be secreted in saliva, semen, gastric juices nasal secretions, vaginal secretions, sweat, tears, and urine, to name a few. Now, it's unclear whether Backhouse was a secretor or not, but it didn't really matter. On the glue of the envelope, the scientists found a brown fiber which matched perfectly to a brown cardigan sweater Backhouse owned. The last piece of evidence against him came while he was in his holding cell. He conned another prisoner to smuggle out an unsigned letter out of the prison, which would implicate Fidel Taylor... In the car bombing but the letter was confiscated before it ever even made it out experts analyzed this letter and matched the handwriting to the pig letter sent to the farm with these two additional pieces of evidence they had their smoking gun and took him to trial His trial lasted about 16 days and backhouse was ultimately convicted on both charges and sentenced to two life sentences Unfortunately, Backhouse wouldn't get what most deem as true justice as he died only nine years later in prison at the age of 53. And that's this week's case. This week's case was really fun for me to research and work on. Something some people may know about me is that I have a massive interest in forensics, so getting to dive kind of deeper into them in this case was incredibly interesting and I hope you found it interesting as well. I know the fear per se was less obvious this week, but I'd never actually heard this case told anywhere else, so I really wanted to just be able to do it and put it out there for everyone. I hope you enjoyed this case and will join me again next week for another case. As always, don't forget to follow me on Instagram at newfearpod for photos relating to each case and here on Spotify so you never miss a new episode.